Sam was a carpenter 50 years. He pounded out blood, sweat, and tears. One day he hung his hammer up. He wanted to do the things he loved. What once was Sunday fishing, now was seven days a week. He told his wife to find me, I'll be down at the creek. Cause I don't want to drive another nail. I've worked hard to do my job and I did it well. I've got the scars on these two hands to show I haven't failed. But I don't want to drive another nail. Now she was a woman full of faith, and old Sam was full of pride. And she knew that he had one more job to do before he died. Easter Sunday rolled around at a country church for the lost and found. Old Sam was there against his will As the preacher spoke of Calvary's hill And how they took the master And they nailed him to a tree And you could hear old Sam a-crying As he fell down on his knees Oh, I don't want to drive another nail I want to live my life for you I want to do it well You've got the scars on your two hands To show where I have failed Lord, I don't want to drive another nail I don't want to drive another nail I want to live my life for you, I want to do it well. You've got the scars on your two hands to show where I have failed. Lord, I don't want to drive another nail. Weren't you blessed by that? Amen. Thank you, Rhonda, once again. If you have your Bible or something that opens a Bible, uh, we'll be in Psalm 119. I wonder if anybody had memorized our Warrior Word memory verse this week and wanted to bless us by uh, saying it in front of everybody. It was James 4-7, just to give you a hint. Well, I'll say it for you then. It was, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. James 4, 7. Uh, this week's is a pretty familiar one, although I don't know if we have all of it memorized. It's Lamentations 3, uh, verse 22 and 23. And uh, anyway, hope somebody will memorize that. i got a couple things I want to set out here. 
I'll, I'll wait for that though. Our, our next sermon in Psalm 119, this is the 13th uh, message, so therefore we'll be in the 13th section of Psalm 119. Uh, this set of eight verses or octave of verses uh, is highlighted by the alph- alphabetic uh, letter or the uh, Hebrew letter of Mame. It's a lot like our M letter in the English alphabet. Uh, And so, just as a reminder, every line in this section, these eight verses, starts with that Hebrew letter, Mame. And uh, and so there's an M word that starts each of those verses there, verses 97 through 104. And so, there's a couple of distinctive things about this verse, or this section of Scripture, I mean. Uh, There's two verses in here that when we read it, you'll say, oh yeah, I know those verses, Uh, and specifically verse uh, 97, and uh, and then again verse uh, 103, you'll you'll probably say, oh yes, I remember singing a song that had those verses in it. Maybe, uh, I know as a youth, we sang a song that had those verses in it. Uh, There's something else very unique about this set of verses, 97 through 104. This is the only, or up to this point, this is the only... Um, section in, in, in Psalm 119 where the psalmist does not make a request of God. All 12 sections leading up to this, he makes a request. He pleads. He, uh, remember, this is a prayer, and in this prayer he has pled with God to do something or to help him or uh, to comfort him or to give him mercy. This section, there's no plead. Um, it's really just a section of praise, if you will. Uh, a praise to God and a praise to God for His Word. Before we read this text, though, I have a question for you. How many of you would like some of this? I got me a little corn muffin here. My wife made us some corn muffins yesterday. And uh, I, I'm going to leave that in the bag because if I smell that, I'm going to eat it right now. And that's not going to be good. And then here's our honey bear. And my kids are going to say, we've got to make sure we get that home because uh, we like honey. I don't know about you, I like honey. How many of you would, would take this if I offered it to you right now? some honey, and and a corn muffin. And if your answer is yes, or maybe you would say, forget the corn muffin, just give me the honey, uh, then my next question would be this. What kind of satisfaction would that bring to you? What kind of delight would the honey, or the corn muffin in the honey, or maybe just the corn muffin, would that bring to you? Think about that. Let's read our scriptures Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words unto my taste. I'm sorry, that's that song I was thinking about. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 104, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the book of Psalm and Psalm 119. I pray, Lord, you would just speak to us through your word. Lord, your Holy Spirit, as it 
is present in this place. Lord, that it would have immense freedom to, to impact us, to convict us, to talk to us, to uh, draw us where we need to be drawn. It's in your name I pray this, Lord Jesus. Amen. This section starts off with a beautiful proclamation. Oh, how I love your law. The psalmist loved God's word. You might ask though, some people might ask, I don't know, the question why? Why does the psalmist love God's word? And in his reasoning, we need to find the application for ourselves. Why do I love God's word? Some say, well, it brings me comfort on a hard night. Uh, it brings me peace when things are uh, un unrestful or, or there's no peace. In 2017, why do you love God's Word? Or can you even say with any kind of confidence that you do love God's Word? Perhaps you wonder what it looks like to love God's Word. And you want to know how do I have more of a love for God's Word? I want to give you the psalmist's reason for why he, loved God. he loves God's Word. And really, the reason can be summed up with one word, wisdom. If I was going to sum up this section as to why does the psalmist love God's Word, I would sum it up with that word, wisdom. From God's Word, he derives much wisdom. And, and so what I want us to really get a grip of is what is meant by this word, wisdom, when he says that. Because he doesn't use just the word wisdom, but in the Hebrew he uses a word that really translates to understanding, insight, insight for living. And the application is more than just saying, well, wisdom. What do we mean by that? Why does wisdom give him a love for God's word? And so let me break it down for you a little bit. The first thing I see here is, is the wisdom he gets is wisdom amongst the wise. That's the first bit of wisdom he gets. He lists three groups of people, and at first we might say, well, that's kind of disrespectful in what he says about two of them, because he says, I have more wisdom, right, or I have more understanding than my, all of my teachers, I, have, uh, I understand more than the ancients. We might say, well, that sounds kind of disrespectful, this guy is kind of, it's kind of cocky, right, he's kind of full of himself, why would he say such a thing? Now, the first statement we can get, we can get under Verse 98, when he says, your commandments make me wiser than all my enemies. Yeah, we're good with that. But what about the teachers and the ancients? Is he being disrespectful? And I mean to say that he, when he says, I am wiser than the teachers and I am wiser than the ancients or elders or those who have come before him, that those who have set an example, you might say those that are a generation ahead of him. Is this not egotistical? I don't believe that he's being disrespectful, especially when you consider the pairing of these verses and when you especially consider the context of time in which he's speaking. This time period was very respectful. Put on a high pedestal, those elders, those who came before them in time, put on a high pedestal, those that were teachers. So when we think about these individuals and the amount of respect they generally commanded, what does he mean by saying, I am wiser than my teachers, or I have more understanding than my teachers, and I have more understanding than my elders? Well, let's first, let's consider those teachers. In biblical times, a teacher was, well, it was given much respect. There was an attitude of, you know, there's everybody else, and there's the teachers, because they were teachers of the law. And so this is not a, a comment, I believe, of disrespect of, you know what, my my, uh, my Bible gives me more wisdom than my teachers. The last thing I want is for our kids to go home today and tell their parents, 
Mom, Dad, I'm never going to school again. The preacher said all I need was the Word of God and I would be wiser than all my teachers. Don't take that home, students. That's not what I am saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. But when you think of teachers, one of the things that you must understand that was applicable in biblical times and is still applicable today is that they generally specialized in one particular area. In biblical times, they might specialize in one of the prophets or one of the commandments, and they would write an entire book on how to apply this commandment to their life. They were very wise in how to lead a godly life in that time period. Think about in 2017, what do our teachers do? They do the same thing. They specialize in one grade or one particular subject area, science, math, English, history. And they're very wise in those areas. They're very wise in how to apply that particular area of study to their life. What the psalmist is saying is not, my teachers are dumb and I'm smarter than them. But he's saying, listen, they are wise in their particular zeroed in point of interest. God's word makes me wise in all of life. God's word makes me have insight for every part of life. The application of God's word is not to one particular point of our life, but to all of life. The psalmist's claim isn't that he is wise on his own, but his claim is is that God's word, his testimonies, give him wisdom. Why? Because they are his meditation. That's what he says in verse 99. Your testimonies, God's word, are my meditations. In other words, it's what he thinks about on a regular basis. The word meditate means that he dwells on it. He spends a lot of time thinking upon it. I've used this word before and described it like this. When you think of the word meditate, you need to think of about how a cow chews grass. You know, it doesn't just pick up a hunk of grass, chew it a few times, and then swallow it like, you know, you know, my kids eat. (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Sorry, kids. But you know, cows, they'll take up a hunk of grass, they'll chew it and chew it and chew it, swallow it, and It's kind of gross. Then they regurgitate it, they chew it some more, then they swallow it. They've got a whole process for how they digest. That's that's our process, really. That's what the, the psalmist is saying. I meditate, I chew on God's word. Because of that, it makes me wiser than my teachers. Not that I'm smarter than a teacher, but I am smarter in regards to applying all of God's life, or all of God's word to my life. What about the ancients? Let's consider the ancients or the elders. When he uses that word ancients in verse 100, what he's talking about is those that are perhaps a generation or so ahead of him. If David is indeed the writer of Psalm 119, he might be talking about Samuel. He might be talking about Jesse, his dad. He might be talking about Ruth and Boaz, his grandparents. There's a lot of people in the lineage of David that he could be looking up to. Why is he saying I'm more wise or I have better understanding? I understand more than the ancients. Again, this is not disrespectful. In the biblical text, in the biblical times, all of the elders, all of the ancients, those that come a a generation ahead of us are held in high regard. You don't disrespect those that have set the path before you. You know, we try to have a similar Mindset nowadays, respect your elders, right? We say something like that. When we tell stories about those that have passed on before us, don't we generally tell the good stories? You know, when I remember my grandfather, I remember that he was 
He was uh, uh, in the army in World War II. He was part of that Normandy beach storming. Uh, he, he was spent time over in France and, and uh, did all of that stuff. I don't think about any of the bad stuff. No, I think about the good stuff. I try to respect his memory. That's the same kind of mindset they would have back then. The ancients were wise. They had much knowledge. But his claim is, is that he understands more than the ancients. And again, this Hebrew word for understand has to do with insight for living. The ancients have much knowledge. They have much insight. But that knowledge and that insight comes from their personal experience. When you talk, about, when you talk to someone who's older than you, don't they generally say, listen, you need to learn from my experience, their experience, or their, even their trial and errors. As parents, don't we always say, Listen, kids, I want you to learn from my mistakes, right? That's, that's the wisdom that the ancients have, the elders have, those that are in a, 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 a generation ahead of us. The elders might have great wisdom on what time of year to plant the garden or the best financial investments to make or how to raise a family. And they have this understanding because they have lived through it. Hear me loud and clear. I am not disregarding the importance of garnering wisdom from the previous generation from our elders, but their wisdom and their understanding is gained on experience and on trial and error, and it is limited to what they understand. But God's Word gives insight to all of life without the trial and error, by the way. That's the good news of God's Word. I don't have to go through the trial and error if I would just apply His Word to my life. And the psalmist is saying, listen, I appreciate the ancients, I appreciate the elders, I appreciate those who have set the path before me, but I don't have to learn from their mistakes by making those mistakes. I can learn from God's Word. It gives me greater understanding. But what about the enemies? Surely this is a statement of disrespect. Yeah, I'm smarter than my enemies. They are dumb, and I'm smart, right? Not so fast. Because you see, in warfare... Or even in sports, the wise person knows to respect their opponent, to respect their knowledge, to respect their wisdom, their understanding, their ability to outwit you or defeat you or outplan you, strategize. And so I don't believe the psalmist is making a disrespectful statement at all. I believe he does respect his enemies. In fact, I believe he thinks his enemies are pretty wise because that's the smart thing to do is to con consider your enemies to be wise so you strategize and plan as well. And if you think again, again, if David is the writer of Psalm 119, most of his enemies are going to be rulers and authorities and kings, rulers over kingdoms. What do kings and rulers have around them? Don't they have all kinds of advisors? Hey, traps, war counselors, military strat. Think about our president. When our president is elected, the first thing he does is he begins to construct his cabinet, his chiefs of staff, his advisors. And our president completely surrounds him with people that have knowledge and wisdom on certain particular areas, especially military advisors. And so I am sure the writer of this is thinking about the wise people, the wisdom, the advisors that surround his enemies. And what he is saying is, listen, he has his wise people, he has his 
advisors. He has his war counselors. But I have the word of God. The psalmist says that God, through his word, makes him wiser than all his enemies. Why? Because while the enemy might be surrounded by all his advisors, the psalmist is constantly surrounded by God's word. This is what essentially he says in verse 98. He says, for they, the commandments, God's word, for they are ever with me. They are ever with me. They are always with me. The psalmist is not being disrespectful towards the teachers or the elders or even his enemies, but he is giving high credence to the word of God and its impact on his life. We would say he has a very high view of scripture. You see, when you make the word of God the love of your life, it will have a massive impact on your life. It will give you great wisdom. Unfortunately, our first response in life and to life troubles is not to go running to the Word of God, but going to running to the Word of others. And instead of running to the river of life, we run to the river of humanity. In church, that river is dry. It has nothing for us. We are seeking the wisdom about life from empty vessels when we've got a full vessel right here, overflowing with wisdom. Why are we running to the phone? Why are we running to the internet? Why are we running to Dr. Oz? Or I don't know who people get advice from nowadays. I'm not sure. In this text, I see the psalmist giving us a reason to see the all-sufficient power of God's Word. And it is because of the vast wisdom it has for all of life. Not just on Sunday morning. Not just on Wednesday night. Not just when we are having a little trouble. But this is for all of life. How much is God's Word with you? How much is God's Word in your life? Thinking about those three things he says about how he gets wisdom. He makes this statement in verse 98, For they, God's word, is always with him. Verse 99, For your testimonies are my meditation. In other words, they're what I always think about. And in verse 100, Because I keep your precepts. In other words, I hold on to them. They're mine, and nobody's going to take them away from me. Do you have that kind of hold on God's word in your life? If you're looking for insight, that's how you get it from God's Word. Because you have it with you at all times. You hold it dear. Meditate on it. Next, I would say the psalmist tells us that God's Word gives him, number two, wisdom over sin. The psalmist makes two very important statements regarding wisdom and sin. Because of the influence of God's Word and wisdom, he says, I have restrained my feet. Even though the emphasis seems to be that he has done it on his own, we know the context of the scripture. We know that he was only able to restrain his feet from every evil way because of God's word. And notice the psalmist has discovered a great truth. He says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. You see, what he has discovered is, is that he cannot keep God's word as long as he is going the evil way. But when he restrains himself from the evil way, he is more able to keep God's word. There is no way we can have both. We cannot keep God's word and keep the evil way. One has got to give. The scripture reminds me of verse 9, a few sections ago, Psalm 119, when the psalmist asked this question. 
How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed to your word, by keeping God's word. How do I avoid sin? By keeping God's word. The second important statement he makes is in verse 102. He says, I have not departed from your judgments. Keeping from sin is not just about not doing the bad things, but continuing in the good things. How many times do we hear a verse that sounds something like this? Don't grow weary in doing good. It's a major emphasis of God's word. Don't grow tired of doing those things that are righteous. Don't depart from God's word. Don't depart from his sound judgment on our life. Keeping from sin, again, is not just about not doing the bad things, but it is continuing in the right things. There are many heartaches we face as Christians. One of the greatest to me is when we see a Christian that falls away from God's will in their life. They cast it away. They say, I I don't even think I believe that anymore. They depart from God and His Word. They reject the living God of salvation. They reject His wisdom and they start living for the selfishness of flesh. But God's Word has given the psalmist wisdom. He recognizes that it is not words on a page that infiltrated his life, but that these words, the scriptures he memorizes, these aren't the ponderings of some spiritual men, but these are the expressed and written revelations of God himself. Hear how he expresses this in verse 102. For you yourself have taught me. When we read God's word, when we apply it to our life, when we make it so much of a part of our life, when we let ourselves be changed by it, it is not the wordings of men or the expressions of a pen that have taught us, but it is God himself. Why does it give me wisdom over sinfulness? Because I am allowing myself to be changed from the inside out by God himself. And that is wisdom. That is insight for living. That is allowing God's word to give us wisdom. When I see a part of my life that doesn't align with God's word, I try to avoid it. And it's not because I fear punishment from God. I fear God's hand not being on my life, which is punishment enough. You understand what I'm saying? I don't fear God sending the lightning for when I sin. I fear God's hand not being on my life. I fear not being in His will. That's that's what the the psalmist is is talking about. Listen, I have restrained my feet. I've not departed from your judgments because I want your word in my life and I realize when I sin, when I leave your judgments, when I leave your word, I'm no longer walking according to your will. That's what he fears. That's, That's what I think too. Whoa. Did the pastor just make some egotistical claim that he has wisdom? No, I am claiming the same thing the psalmist has claimed. God himself has taught me through his word the benefit of living according to his word instead of my flesh. That's something you can claim too. That's not boasting in myself. That is boasting in the word of God and God himself. Finally, we get this third bit of wisdom. 
the psalmist talks about a wisdom of contentedness. Wisdom of contentedness. And I use this phrase, phrase contentedness, which may or, not be, may or may not be a real word. I, I don't know, but I, I wanted to use something other than the word delight. I feel like I use the word delight on a weekless, weekly basis. The psalmist compares God's word in 103 to the sweetness of honey. I enjoy honey. I don't know about you. I enjoy honey on a lot of different things. We go through a lot of honey at our house. We put it on our cornbread. We put it on our biscuits. Put it in my tea. I, I, just, I just enjoy some honey. It's something about the sweetness of it, right? You ever have that longing, that craving for something sweet, right? The meal is over and you're like, I just need a little taste of something sweet. And so you, you grab that leftover cornbread and you just cover it up in honey because you just need a taste of something sweet, right? Sweetness brings delight or pleasure or satisfaction to our tongues. But the psalmist isn't talking about a delight for his tongue. This, this is not about the physical satisfaction. It's about spiritual, a spiritual hunger that he has for something sweet. And he's not willing to settle for spiritual honey, if you will. The offerings that creation have, the offerings of mankind, they will not soothe his need for a delight. He knows the very best thing he can offer his spiritual hunger is the word of God. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Wisdom finds delight, finds satisfaction, finds pleasure, contentedness in the Word of God. Because you know that when it comes to finding delight in something, it is a personal choice. What do you delight in? What do you satisfy yourself in? Some of you may look at this honey and say, yeah, I'd like some of that honey. Some of you may look at it and say, I really don't care for honey. I'd rather have some chocolate. Maybe some dark chocolate, right? Pour it over some ice cream. Or maybe some of you are like, I don't want anything sweet, just give me a piece of bacon. It's all about personal choice. It's all about what satisfies you. The problem is, is that we are constantly finding our satisfaction in a plethora of things. And what the world needs, what the world desperately needs, is to see the church, that is the followers of Jesus Christ, to make the personal choice to find delight, to find satisfaction, to find contentedness in the Word of God instead of all the things that the world offers us. Listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with these creature comforts. I, I enjoy relaxing like the rest of you. When we're done here, I'll go down to the house and eat some lunch like the rest of you will go home and eat some lunch and I'll kick up my feet and, and relax on the couch. But that's not going to soothe my soul. That's not going to feed me spiritually. And at the end of the day, I am not going to say, you know what I really need is some honey. But what I desperately want to be able to say is at the end of the day, if I have not spent time in God's Word, that I say I desperately need God's Word. Because there is nothing more satisfying 
than God's Word. And I have chosen to be satisfied by only God's Word. Have you gotten to a place where you realize that this is the very best thing for satisfying your spiritual needs and hungers? Until you do, you will continue to hunger and hunger and hunger and perhaps starve spiritually. There is nothing better than this. And it is indeed wisdom that finds contentment, that finds delight, that finds satisfaction in the Word of God over all things. Because as good as cornbread and honey or whatever it is you like to have is, that satisfaction fades or it modifies. And we're like, now I want some ice cream with chocolate dibbles, right? Listen, I don't want any of the kids here to think that it's evil to like honey, okay? Don't go home and think, well, the preacher said it's evil if we have honey for lunch. That's not what we're saying. We're comparing a physical satisfaction and a spiritual satisfaction. Using the idea of a, a physically satisfying thing like honey to talk about how only God's Word can satisfy us spiritually. Well, so what? You may be asking, why does that matter? I want you to look at verse 104, real quickly. He says, through your precepts, I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. It sounds like just a repeat of what we've already covered, right? But I want you to see the bookend this is to this octave of verses. Verse 97, what does he say? Oh, how I love your law. Verse 104, how he ends this section, I hate every false way. Christianity, sometimes we forget that hate is supposed to be a part of our language. But not hate for sinners, not hate for people, not hate for uh, uh, things so much. But one thing, sin. We are supposed to hate sin. We are supposed to hate sin in us. We're supposed to hate sin in others. It's not the others, it's the sin. But do we? Do we hate sin? Do we hate every false way? Here's, here's my point. Our love for God's Word is cultivated by our hate for sin. If you're a gardener, you know what this word cultivated means. Our ability to love God's Word, our growth in loving God's Word, loving God's Word grows because we hate sin. But if we don't hate sin, there's not going to be much love for God's Word. We can't have both. We can't have love for God's Word and love for that special little sin in our life. Because our hate for every false way leads us to the only thing that defeats that false way. And it is God. And it is His Word. And when I turn in His Scripture, I am reminded, I'm reminded of His forgiveness for every false way. I'm reminded of His mercy for my every false way. I'm reminded of His grace for my every false way. I am reminded of His love for me despite my every false way. And I am reminded of the price He paid for my false way. Oh, how I love your law, oh God. How I love your word. Why is it that you love God's word? 
Is it because he gives you warm fuzzies? Or is it because you've learned the wisdom that it gives you for living? It gives you wisdom over sin, and it gives you wisdom to be content in God and in His Word. Do you love God's Word because it reminds you of the love you need to have for Him instead of sin? And understand the opposite is true. The more we choose sin, the more we will hate His Word. The more we love that special little sin in our life, the more we will reject God's Word. We'll reject its teaching. We'll reject its preaching. We'll reject every part of it. I heard a pastor say this one time, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. You choose. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we all must decide what we will do with your book, with your word. We all must decide if we will be satisfied by it or we will be satisfied by something else. We all must choose whether we will love your word or love sin. Lord, your Bible tells us of the great price you paid for our sin. Your Bible tells us of how you sent your son to die on the cross. Lord, the wisest thing that we can ever do is choose Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Choose the payment made for our sin. and Choose to hate sin and love you instead. Father, during this time of invitation, I pray that we would all respond in obedience to how your Holy Spirit is drawing us. Lord, I've made your argument from your word that the best satisfaction we can find is in your word. The best wisdom we can find is in your word. Father, I pray that we would all choose wisely. It is in your name I pray. Jesus Christ, amen. Would you stand?